Okay, I'm here today with Meryl Nass. Um, she has, you may have seen some of her articles. She had a fantastic article about hydroxychloroquine quite a while ago. And more recently, um, this piece, Shameless Manipulation, Positive PCR Tests Drop After Who Instructs Vendors to Lower Cycle Thresholds. We have been played like a fiddle. Um, so welcome to the show. Um, I just, just, as background, Meryl is, has been an internal medicine physician for 40 years. Is that right? Sure. And um, what got you, why, why are you so interested in the, the testing, the, the whole sort of fiasco that we're finding ourselves in the middle of? What, what got you interested in this? Well, I've been an activist my adult life and you know, I have a a background that luckily makes me able to understand what's going on with COVID um, in a lot of different ways. So I, I have a background working in biological warfare. I investigated and was able to uncover, I'm first person who's done this, investigated an epidemic um, using its uh, features and statistical information and shown it was due to biological warfare. And I did that in 1992. Um, I tried anything that's obviously incorrect or a lie or is harmful to people. If I can use my expertise to um, help to uncover it or make sense of it, I, I do that. So I have a fairly good science background. I got a bachelor's degree in biology from MIT. I went to medical school and did an internal medicine residency. And um, I worked as an internist uh, doing all the things internal medicine doctors do. So I've worked in, in the ER, in the ICU, in hospitals, and then also seen outpatients. I've also had to sort of design treatment programs and evaluation programs for lots of people who got sick from Gulf War syndrome, chronic fatigue syndrome, and uh, anthrax vaccine, and sometimes other vaccines. So, and in the middle of all that, I, I've testified to six different congressional committees and several Institute of Medicine committees. I've, test, I've been quoted in all major U.S. newspapers and um, major other media, um, given lots of talks at conferences, uh, written about 35 papers. So um, anyway, I have the science background, the medicine background, and the ability to look for information and figure things out. And um, so I got into the issue of is CDC counting cases directly? Are they are the recommendations helping us to diagnose cases correctly and treat them correctly? And all those areas seem to be up my alley, and I've sort of written about all of them. Just to sidetrack for for a second, um, you said that in 1992 you investigated an epidemic. Which what what was that? So. The world's largest uh, epidemic, it's called an epizootic because it happened first in cattle and then humans became infected through consuming or butchering cattle. It was anthrax. Um, it happened in Rhodesia, which subsequently was named Zimbabwe. During a civil war, Rhodesia was a colony of the United Kingdom. And 
1965 to avoid being spun off as an independent nation with majority black rule. The very small number of whites who had been leading the country declared independence and tried to run the country as you know a minority government. It was a um, anyway, that that went on for 15 years, and the whites basically fought against guerrilla bands of black people, uh, won every battle and lost the war. And it was a dirty war. There were chemical and biological weapons agents used. There were, it was a proxy war, somewhat similar to the Spanish Civil War before World War II, so that uh, China, the UK, the United States, Britain, probably France, Germany, all had agents there. There were a lot of mercenaries. There was a South Africa was involved. And um, so a lot was going on and a lot of people were keeping records. And because there were records kept, I was able to trace uh, how much anthrax had been in the country before the war and then how much there was during the war and how it spread and show that the that was very unnatural in the way it spread in the places it was located how it managed to stay inside the borders of Rhodesia etc mm. interesting interesting and um i know i didn't sort of bring you on the show to talk about this but do you have a view as to whether there's you know there's so much speculation as to whether SARS-CoV-2 is a bioweapon do you have a position on that um, my position is that it's almost certainly was was created in a lab. Um, there are so many anomalous things about its genome that I, I think really anyone who fairly looks at the evidence will say, yes, this, this looks like it came from a lab. Then the second question is, was it leaked by accident from a lab or was it spread deliberately? And that's a question we really don't have any uh, information to go on. But I have suggested to people the way you investigate that kind of potential crime is you look for means, motive, and opportunity. And so uh, it started in Wuhan. It started in a town that had biological, that had labs that were doing research on agents, on coronaviruses that are similar. We don't know if they were identical to this coronavirus. But if you were trying to make it seem like it was due to a lab leak, you would and you wanted to have it break out in China, you would have picked Wuhan as mm -hmm. the, the perfect place. Um, it doesn't appear at least so far, it may help China in the long term, but right now it seems like it has helped, you know, a few billionaires, it has helped deal with a, a dollar crisis that was emerging. Um, so in terms of motive, it seems like the motive, there are more people over here that may have had motive. Mm -hmm. uh, opportunity, it was a, Wuhan is a trading center and lots of international people come through there. So the opportunity was there for virtually any body or country or um, sub-state agent to, to spread it if they had the bug. Okay. Another aspect of this is who funded the research in Wuhan? Well, it was primarily funded by the Chinese government, but there were contracts with the European Union, the contracts with NIAID. And interestingly, some of those NIH 
NIAID, that's Fauci's agency, contracts didn't go directly to Wuhan, but went through another company called, uh, or it calls itself an NGO, but it's when your CEO gets paid more than the president of the United States, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's not really a charity. Um, that's Peter Dayzak. Uh, Eco Health Alliance was used as a pass-through mechanism, apparently to shield the NIH from view as one of the funding sources. And that in itself is of interest. Why would the NIH do that? That costs money. You have to pay Eco Health mm-hmm. Alliance in addition to what goes to the um, Wuhan Institute of Virology. And the research, researchers sort of shared information from Australia, from Singapore, from Japan, from Europe and the and U.S. in particular, we we along with Wuhan probably had the best coronavirus researchers in the world. But that is arguable. Um, so I think there are a number of labs that could have produced something that looked like this. And um, right now, people have spent a year just trying to argue about whether it could have come from a lab leak or whether it came naturally from an animal. And we've wasted a year in a discussion that didn't need to happen because really when you look at the genome, it's quite apparent that this this thing jumped out in Wuhan um, made for humans. You know, it it joined the ACE2 receptor more strongly, the human ACE2 receptor, than it did the bat ACE2 receptor. Mm-hmm. You know, it had already been created um, in either human tissue culture or humanized mice. It also has, uh, it, it creates a lot of peptides that are homologous or identical to human peptides and mouse peptides, but not so many to any other animals. Hmm. Um, which suggests it was it was grown in these these lab animals and and so when you when you say grown in them are, do you mean created from scratch or started with a with an existing virus that was out there and modified? Um, so there <laughs> there's a lot of theories about how one might do it. I mean, obviously you do experiments on the way, so you see which features. Um, which parts of the genome work to do different things. Mm -hmm. And that kind of work was being done in China and in the U.S. You know, where, uh, you know, how does it get into a cell? Okay, you have to find out that it's the ACE2 receptor. Then you have to look at different different, um, ACE2 receptors and figure out which is the best one, right? And um, so this certainly could have just been part of another experiment and escaped i mean i'm not say, i'm not saying that this was due to deliberate spread but i think the question is was it a, was it deliberately spread or was it um inadvertently released and and not did it come from a lab and mm-hmm. also one should acknowledge that both the united states and china went to great lengths to hide the fact that it came from a lab Mm-hmm. cover it up. Okay. Yeah. And to cover up the funding, the funding sources too, it seems like. Yeah. That was a little harder because papers had been published. Mm-hmm. Right. And acknowledge their funding. That's how people found out. So they didn't try that hard, I guess. No, 
because maybe those papers were not leading to this, you know? Right. Yeah. We know about the funding of Wuhan. We know, you know, we know something about the funding of labs here in the U S but since none of them, you know, has come forward to say, we, we made something very like this coronavirus, you know, we don't really know which lab it may have come from. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Sorry. I didn't want to take you down that, that track um, for, for too long. Um, I really wanted to talk about what's going on with the manipulation of the, the test results. And you start off with your piece talking about how hospitalization rates associated with COVID have really dropped. And isn't that great news? Right. So it's rather amazing. From the beginning of January to now, we have half as many people hospitalized allegedly due to COVID as we did six weeks ago. <laughs> No, half. Um, and in terms of cases, we have less than half as many cases as we did six weeks ago. Although deaths have only gone down a little. Uh, this is according to the data that is publicly available and that CDC provides. Now, deaths lag cases and hospitalizations by... Um, probably about three weeks for case when a case is first diagnosed and, and hospitalization when you're first admitted, you probably die on average a couple of weeks later if that is what is going to happen to you. But um, there's been a six weeks, a six week lag. So we haven't seen the number of deaths drop nearly as much as, as I would have expected. In the last week, we've averaged over 3000 deaths attributed to covid per day, when we're up to not quite four before thousand per day. Um, what the paper goes into is the fact that all these numbers can be manipulated in different ways and probably have been. And what's so a really interesting piece of news that came out. Uh, so December 14th and then uh, date in, I think, January 20th, um, the WHO issued guidance on PCR testing. And I have looked, I've, I've checked on, um, you know, archive sites to see if I could find guidance previous to that. I haven't. I'm wondering if maybe if you know of any I haven't seen anything prior to December 14th from the WHO talking about here's how you should be doing, here's what your cycle thresholds should be, here's here's yes. how you should be using PCR tests, that you should also be looking at symptoms. And you know, it, it's not just that a test result, that a positive result equates to a case. Had they said anything about this before that? Well, I don't know of any. I haven't looked. You've probably okay. looked more than, more than I, um, because I wouldn't have expected that guidance to come from WHO and affect us. It should come from the FDA or the CDC mm. here. The CDC um, normally licenses these tests. It has to approve them, but the CDC... I could go into this. Is right. That's a whole story, story in itself. I don't want to get into a long story, but the, the CDC at first, in the beginning of the first two months uh, when we knew of COVID, CDC and FDA refused to allow anybody to issue yeah. a test for COVID. Yeah. Only, C only CDC could issue a test. And turned out their test was no good. 
and they weren't able to fix it, which is it's very curious. It should have been good. Mm-hmm. Other people, they everyone was working from the same uh, genetic structure, and uh, other countries and the WHO had come up with tests that were allegedly good, but mm-hmm. CDC couldn't, despite you know many people looking at it. So for two months we had no tests, and ev- everybody that might have built a test was told, "Don't." Right. Right. Well, in fact, there were there were independent labs making tests. They just weren't allowed to use them to send That's them anywhere right. or to use them. On right. One. And if you think you're not going to be able to use your test, why <laughs> spend a lot of money developing right. it? Right. So in the beginning of uh, the 29th of February, finally CDC, you know put up the yellow flag, <laughs> said, okay, I surrender. And FDA said, all right, we're going to let people apply using emergency use authorizations with their tests. Go for it. Mm-hmm. And so at first, so during that first two or three weeks in March, hardly anybody, in one place I saw four, in one place I saw six um, companies or labs applied to FDA to have a test approved because the paperwork was complicated and somebody Hmm. said a week just to fill in the paperwork. Wow. So that was no good. So now we're at the end of March and we have, you know, massive deaths in New York city and they needed to do something. So FDA came up with a a new unprecedented idea. And that was anybody who has a test can offer it. We're going (laughs) to let you start selling tests and you can send us data that supports the fact that your test actually works over the next few weeks. But it was like, open the floodgates. What a radical idea. (laughs) (laughs) And so all kinds of tests with who knows what accuracy, many of them came from China, Mm. um, became available in the US. And now we have over 300. And FDA Mm. did not approve a single one has not approved a single one. Oh, so the what so the tests that are that are out there now are are not even EUA approved they're, or they're, 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 they are EUA approved. Okay, so, but they're not but they're none of them are they're, they're, sorry. FDA says do not use the word approved. They're right, authorized. Right, right, right. They're not right. approved. They're not licensed and FDA can tell you to stop issuing your test at any time. And they mm-hmm. have taken away some number of tests, mostly from China, mm-hmm. but there are over 300 left. Um, they have started to try to standardize some of them, <clears throat> offering um, little test kits to the manufacturers. The manufacturers are supposed to run these <clears throat> test swabs and see you know, what results they get and send it back to FDA. But um, they're still in relatively early days of that because they have so many, they finally said, stop, we're not going to accept anymore. No more EUAs will be issued for the time being until we get a handle on what we've already got. So, Mm -hmm. so there are three kinds of tests out there. There's the PCR, which is considered the most accurate. There are antibody tests, which are considered almost worthless. And there are rapid antigen tests, which are less accurate than the PCR test but um, are being used nonetheless. And for those in the states which collect data, oftentimes the rapid antigen results and the PCR results are merged. You also have to, so, so in terms of how many positive people that, how many cases a state has, if, if you've tested positive with a PCR test, you're a case. 
-hmm. a definite case. And if you've tested positive with a rapid antigen case, test, you're a probable case. And apparently CDC calls all probable cases, cases. <laughs> so you're, you're a case if you test positive on either one, no matter what, even if there are no other cases of COVID in, in your, you know, on the island you live on. You or know, if you if have no symptoms. Exactly. Yeah. Most of these people have no symptoms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Has anything ever like this been done before? Has there has there been anything in our history where people have been mass tested for something for which they may or may not have symptoms? So so just mass population wide testing is that is this unprecedented? So in my forty years with an MD, I've never seen anything like it. My guess is that it, the only reason, the only way this could work is if either the government paid and the government is paying for most mm-hmm. of it, many bi- tens of billions of dollars for testing. Yeah. Um, in the old days, when I was a child, you know, we didn't have much health insurance. We had hospitalization insurance and it didn't pay for outpatient tests. And so, you know, everybody would have been responsible for paying for their own tests. So it would have been hard for the country to tell everybody to go get tested. We've we've now done over 300 million tests in the United States. So there's been on average one test per person completed here. Wow. I'll just, I'll throw in something. The only way they can impose vaccine mandates is by having the government pay for most for vaccines such that anyone who isn't covered by private insurance gets their vaccines for free. If we did not have that program, there's because the government is not allowed to mandate that you purchase something. That was a big issue when the ACA came up. Right, right. Oh, interesting. So that applies here. That applies, that applies with the vaccines. Interesting. Huh? And 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 the other piece of that is that it, it seems as if this the strategy on the part of those who want them mandated is not so much to have governments outright mandate them, but employers or you know events, people holding events or businesses that you have to have you know the whole vaccine passport idea, um, and that again subverts. So it's not it, it's just. It's this slippery way of of subverting the law is um, unpredictable in terms of vaccine mandates. So the if the federal government or the state government mandated an EUA vaccine, mm. right, they would probably lose in court. Because right. Because it's an EUA. Yes, it's it's authorized. It's still experimental. It has not completed um, phase three trials. Mm -hmm. None of these vaccines have completed their trials. Um, And in fact, they're not asking people to sign informed consents when they get them. So those things have not been litigated yet, but the federal or state governments certainly have a good possibility of losing in court. So they don't want to um, take an EUA product and man and Mm-hmm. And they would rather, um, and partly through the EEOC, which made us, the EEOC is, um, what's it called? Something, Employment Opportunity Commission, which okay. 
regulates a certain labor law. So that entity, which has actually allowed people to get out of vaccine mandates through a religious exemption mm-hmm. in the past, issued a statement which kind of opened the gates to companies to re- mandate the vaccines for their employees. And oh. what that meant is that then companies would, would have to litigate this rather than the states or the feds. And um, and they might, you know, win or they might not. But it's a trial balloon. Now, once mm. these vaccines are given a license, then they can be pretty easily mandated at the state level. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> the question is whether the CDC and the federal government prefers the vaccines to stay in an EUA status because while they are in an EUA status, they can keep rolling out more versions. You know, they can, they can throw the J and J, the Novavax, the AstraZeneca and a bunch of other vaccines out as EUAs. But once one is licensed, then they have to stop issuing EUAs for the others Right. They need a higher level of evidence, right? Because then a vaccine will be available for this condition. And that's make the argument that we have drugs, you know, ivermectin that work very well for this condition and that vaccines are not necessary. But I I haven't met a lawyer yet who wants to try that that on. (laughs) Yeah, no, it it explains, it explains a lot. Um, yeah. Okay. So, sorry. Getting getting back to the the whole testing fiasco, though. Um, so, testing is a mess. All the tests out there. So we don't really know. Even leaving aside issues like the cycle threshold, we don't really know how good the tests are that are being used. It sounds like they they haven't. Not that I have great faith in the FDA to to evaluate to something like this, but it hasn't even gone through what normally tests would right. be going through. Exactly. So normally most tests, not all, but most tests that we use um, in you know regular medicine are FDA approved. Mm-hmm. And um, so right now it you have a no man's land. Let me also emphasize as So the cycle threshold was an obvious thing that was leading to false positives. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to go too deeply, but cycle threshold refers to the number of doublings. The PCR test is a test in which um, you're trying to find a, a specific piece or a few pieces of RNA or DNA. And actually you if it's start with RNA, this virus is RNA, you turn it into DNA because the test only runs with DNA. So you get a, a homologous copy of DNA and, and you sort of try to find m- matches within the sample you have that are identical to what would be the DNA from this RNA virus. And when you find it, you double it and double it and double it until you can detect it. And so the doublings usually usually that takes 15 to 30 or 35 doublings. And each doubling 
each, sorry, each 10 doublings increases you by about a factor of a thousand. So if you start with one and you do 10 doublings, you have a thousand twenty-four at the end. And if you do another 10 doublings, that would be a cycle threshold of 20, you'd have a million at the end, starting from one. And that would be detectable. And you'd you'd call it a cycle, the cycle, 20 cycles to find it. You were able to find it once you had that much, because you need a lot to detect it. It usually will create a, a fluorescent color or some, there will be a marker that will only show up when there's a lot of this product. So what happens is most tests stop doing these cycles um, at about 35 because they're, this is a fiddly test and you can start copying things that aren't exactly what you wanted to copy. Mm -hmm. And the, the more times you keep doubling it, you get more of this stuff and um, you, you can't really tell what you have at the end. And, and so my colleague, Sin Heng Lee, says you have to really sequence the PCR product after every test to confirm that it's the molecule or this, you know, approximately 20 nucleotide long string that you're looking for, because it could be something else. Mm -hmm. or it could be lots of other things. That's not being done. And apparently, so FDA kept the cycle thresholds for these tests quiet. We, we didn't know. They did not publish in the doc. There are documents published for the EUA authorizations for each test, but they didn't tell you the details of what their primers consisted of that was considered a proprietary piece of information. And apparently the cycle threshold was too. So we knew from some of the tests, some of these machines that had been used for on other things before COVID that they would run cycle thresholds of into the forties. Mm -hmm. And we heard tell there were stories that they were running cycles thresholds in the forties. And so we don't really know what any of these companies were doing because the information hasn't been made public, but they were definitely going too high. And, you know, the, the federal government knew it, WHO knew it. We don't know what's going on in the rest of the world, but WHO finally issued these, this became a bigger and bigger issue. So friends of mine in the UK wrote articles about it. Uh, the Ontario government put put out a brochure. The, the English government put out a brochure just about cycle thresholds to sort of cope with all the talk that was going on about how can we make any sense? You got, mm -hmm. You're going to have very high false positives, could be up to 90% false positives. So they were all trying to deal with this. And then in that process, the WHO issued a sort of a warning saying, um, people who use these tests start reading the instructions again because they're changing. You know, we're advising the manufacturers to turn down the cycle threshold. And then they apparently that didn't have the desired effect. So they issued another guidance in January saying, you know, this is how the test should clinically be used. And please, you know, we're turning down the cycle threshold and check to see what the settings should be on your machine before you use it, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened. And um, so the second WHO guidance came out, interestingly, right about the same time as the inauguration. 
Right. So if, and we don't know this, but if suddenly um, labs and manufacturers started turning down their cycle thresholds at that time, that would have grossly reduced the numbers of cases that are being diagnosed with PCR tests. Mm -hmm. And in fact, our case numbers are now less than 40% what they were six weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So how do we untangle this? If we wanna if we wanna determine, you know, what what percentage of that change in case numbers is due to changing the way the tests are done? Do we just look at excess death numbers? Do what what are what are the indicators we should look at to to untangle what's actually going on here? There's no way you can untangle it unless you have access to real numbers and you have access to information from the CDC and the FDA. Mm. So I've been working with people who are trying to untangle. I mean, there are so many things have been fixed. Mm-hmm. specific to COVID. And so I, and I can go into some of that, that it's, it's impossible to tell what's going on. For example, there used to be a category, CDC breaks down deaths into different categories by diagnosis. And they've long added influenza and pneumonia together. And that's because mm-hmm. there's a lot more pneumonia deaths than there are influenza deaths but they need a big number so that they can say each year, oh, we had 48,000 deaths from influenza. It turns out that's a total estimate based on an algorithm and nobody's allowed to see the algorithm. And they're certainly not testing all of those people for influenza virus. No, and if if you look on death certificates, in 2017, 18, the year we had the worst flu in about 10 years, there were only 6,515 death certificates that listed influenza as the cause of death. Wow. Wow. Um, so it, so the question is, what data do you want to use? Normally, in a normal year, we say the death certificate is the best data because that's supposed to be completed by the person's doctor, the doctor taking care of them, who's supposed to have the best idea as to what their conditions were, and what was the underlying cause of death and the immediate cause of death. However, this year, CDC has been recoding COVID death certificates. Um, And so they've actually been hand coding the death, 20% of the death certificates. If it says COVID on it, they recode it when it gets to CDC. So they don't necessarily accept the coding that comes from the states. And they have different ways of doing that. And I sent them a FOIA two months ago asking for the protocol, but of course they haven't shared it with me (laughs) at this point. Um, They also change the way cases are defined. So cases are defined in the United States, (coughs) excuse me, differently from the WHO. Let me drink some water. Um, (coughs) Sorry. CDC made very inclusive case definitions for COVID and and made them complicated. Um, (coughs) You have to go through quite a rigmarole. You have to look at the 
lab features and then you have to look at some other things and then you have to put, you know, it's like you need two from column A and one from column B, blah, blah. So um, you can't just say, oh, this is a case of COVID or this isn't a case of COVID. Um, so for example, I think I told you before, if you have um, a positive PCR test with no symptoms, no nothing, you're, you're a case throughout mm -hmm. the United States. And if you are, if you've had a positive um, rapid antigen test, you're a probable case, which means CDC considers you a case, but your state may not. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. If you've had a positive antibody case and you have some other feature, like you've been recently exposed to someone with COVID or you're in a job, uh, you're a doctor or a nurse, mm -hmm. so you're in a high risk job, then that makes you a COVID case. Um, if uh, if on autopsy you have a rapid antigen test positive, and you have some other feature like an exposure, your case. Um, but it's it's very complicated. You need there's several pages you have to you know sort of work through. To, to figure right. it out. And it sounds like it's, it's more, it doesn't sound like a lot of stuff that actually makes sense. I mean, to me, right. what would make sense would be, oh, this person has three symptoms that are on our list of symptoms. Um, and they have this positive test and we know something about the test, you know, um, the cycle mm -hmm. threshold or, you know, right. other details about the test. If, it doesn't sound like the things you're describing are things that actually make sense in the context of determining exactly it's a so genuine you, case. When you look at these pieces and you drill down, you say, this could only have been done to increase the case numbers. Mm -hmm. And then you look at what some of the states say. And in some states, if you have ever had a positive PCR test, and then you die for any other cause, including gunshot wounds and car accidents, right. considered a COVID death. COVID is the underlying cause of death, according to, according to your state or according to CDC. In some states, it's 60 days. If you've had a PCR positive within 60 days and you die of something else, some states it's 30 days. I mean, it's, it's a very screwy system. And by having the states rate these cases differently from each other, there is no good way to make sense of it all. You know, unless I went state to state and studied what each one was doing, mm -hmm. I can't, you know, there's nowhere online I can figure this out. And and so, so we know the numbers are no good, but how are they 10% off or are they 50% off? You know, right. I would guess that the, the cases are off by a lot. The, the hospitalizations, my guess is that once the cycle thresholds were turned down, the hospitalization, because everybody in the hospital is being tested. Yeah, yeah. Okay? So, you know, whatever your false positive rate is, you're going. those people are going to be given the diagnosis of COVID and then treated, even if they're there for a heart attack or for- right. Cancer, 
Right. So it's still distorted, regardless of what the cycle threshold number right. is. It's there's still this huge distortion going on. There's some distortion, right? But as you turn the cycle threshold down, you turn the false positives down. Mm-hmm. You don't get as many, and so that probably helps account for why there's only about half as many hospitalized COVID cases as there were six weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. And probably the cycle thresholds were turned down and that's why there are only, you know, 35% or 40% as many cases out of the outpatient cases of COVID new cases as there were six weeks ago. But the deaths, I think, because they have such screwy ways of counting the deaths that don't make any sense, they've still managed to keep them pretty high. Do you know anything about um, California in particular, do you, do you know if there's anything? Okay. Cause that's, seems to me that's sort of a whole, I don't either. I just, I live here. So I'm just wondering if there's anything in particular that they're doing. Um, yeah. So, so addressing the cycle threshold issue doesn't really solve the problem. There's still all this nonsense going on. Do you think people are becoming more aware of it? I mean, it's, it's a huge topic of conversation in, some circles, but do you think people as a whole, do you think there's a wider sort of awareness of how politicized, how kind of meaningless the numbers have become? I'm not sure. The problem is it, the intellectual class in our country you know, has done well in general, as as most of them have kept yeah. their jobs, they don't have to drive to work anymore, and they're getting a salary, haven't been hurting, and most of them have been willing to accept the narrative that the media have given them. The pro- to, to get into all this nitty gritty, drill down into the numbers, you know, look at the definitions, it's very fiddly work. Most people have no patience for it. I would have no patience for it normally, but because things are so dire, yeah. you know, I do it. Yeah. Well, certainly if your business has, has been shut down and you're, you know, struggling to feed your family, this is one of the last things you've got time for is to dig into what's actually going right. on with and the numbers. Right. There's, yeah. There are no easy mems. There's no simple yeah. narrative to this. Yeah. You know, except to say, you know, your federal agencies have been screwing with you <laughs> and, they do, you know, CDC is doing it in 10 different ways. Um, and the, and this had to have been deliberate because you can see them making a mistake here or a mistake there, but all this other stuff, it's just too much to be yeah. deliberate. Yeah. For instance, CDC did not even make up its own case definition. They CDC hid behind the skirts of another organization called the uh, Council of State and Territorial Epidemiologists. So CDC asked this organization to come up with a case definition and then gave them about eight CDC advisors to help them do it, you know, paid them some money and then got themselves a definition and they asked CDC, is this okay? You know, we're giving you what you want. CDC said, yes. And someone has suggested they did that to avoid scrutiny, you know, publication in the Federal Register and scrutiny hmm. by using this outside agency. And I don't know if that's why they did it, but I've seen CDC do that before. They don't like to take responsibility for the 
Interesting. Something that doesn't um, doesn't make sense, you know, is not the way you think that something should be done, mm-hmm. and is probably being done for an ulterior motive. They usually try to hide behind the ASIP or this CSP mm-hmm. or some other organization. Interesting. And talking about motives, I mean, I'm asking you to speculate a little bit, but what are the motives? Why? What are some of the motives behind wanting to create a, an absurdly high level of case numbers? When this started, I believed it was a really terrible pandemic. And I told all my patients to, you know, be very careful, wash their hands, wash all their fruits and vegetables, et cetera, et cetera. And I wrote articles about what you do to protect yourself. And I thought at the time, there's probably a biological weapon that escaped. It's very virulent. And, and this is what you need to do. And luckily, I, with my experience in biowarfare, I knew what to do. And I I was um, board chair of a homeless shelter. And I you know, helped them put up plastic partitions and other things to try to manage this in a scientifically appropriate way. And Everybody was very happy because I, um, you know, had the background to to advise. Um, about five months into it, I realized that there were a lot of screwy things happening that didn't make sense. I discovered, I read about the overdose of hydroxychloroquine in the UK recovery trial, mm-hmm. and then I started finding out that they had overdosed people in four or five other large clinical trials with almost identical doses of hydroxychloroquine. And that, this doesn't happen in medicine. I mean, I've never. Yeah, that's, that's the, in your view that that can't be an accident, right? They, they, it's commonly known what an overdose is. Right? Yeah. Am I right? I, I, don't, it, I don't think it, it's not a judge that it's not a drug that most people use a lot, but I happen to use it a lot. So I was very familiar with it. But if you're doing a clinical trial, somebody looks up the pharmacokinetics. Right. I mean, the WHO right. had meetings about the dose. WHO also held a clinical trial called Solidarity. Yes. Yeah. The same dose. And they had the Bill and Melinda Gates people there helping them to t- decide on the dose. And then that same dose was used in other trials and, and Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Welcome Trust, you know, were involved with some of these other trials also. So it seemed that there was, I, although I can't say what the collusion was, that there was collusion regarding the dose. Now, prob- I, probably the doctors who implemented the dose had no idea it was mm-hmm. a poisonous dose. Mm-hmm. But I was able, by searching, to uncover a report from about 1979 to the WHO, which said that it was a poisonous dose and that doses starting at about that level could be lethal. So, um, and in fact, I um, emailed and uh, tweeted to several people, including Tedros um, at the WHO. And three days later, they stopped that hydroxychloroquine arm of the trial. Interesting. Um, because I told them, you, you, you know, you have not informed your subjects that you're giving them a potentially lethal dose and that could make you liable. And why are they not liable? I mean, why, why they are liable? Just... I mean, I don't, I don't know that anyone's brought a lawsuit yet, 
But they're but certainly, they certainly yeah, should. Yes. I mean, in the UK hydroxychloroquine arm of the trial, where they gave people about four times the normal dose in the first day, they had at least 396 deaths in that mm-hmm. arm, 26% mm-hmm. of the subjects. You know, nowadays, if you treat people properly in the hospital, you're going to have less than 5% deaths. So probably a large number of people in that single trial were killed by the, by a combination of the drug and the fact that they were very sick from COVID. Yeah. Yeah. But they were no, to be clear, they were knowingly given a toxic dose of the drug. Yes. And it was claimed that they needed this toxic dose because, you know, COVID was a bad disease and (laughs) that, you know, it would, that the norm, well, some different people claim different things, but Mm. Some people claim that, yeah, you would need a very high dose in order to kill the COVID. Um, <laughs> others did not make that claim. But then on the other hand, they tried to make the claim that that was, oh, that was a perfectly safe dose. And, you know, and then when when the drug was banned in the United States or, or attempted to be banned, banned in many states yeah. in the U.S., it was that even a normal dose was going to be toxic. Right. Well, right. If a normal dose is so dangerous... For, for disease that can kill you, you know, what's four times a normal dose? Right, right, right. Yeah, well, and what was weird about about those bans, the the state-by-state state bans was a lot of them, it was, I, I don't know if there were, I don't know if there were any like outright bans, like you couldn't use it for, you know, non-COVID-19 purposes, but they explicitly said things like, you know, we're, we're the, the pharmacy boards, we're not going to allow our pharmacists to dispense for COVID related. Yes. What? Right. Exactly. What's the precedent for that? It's fine for lupus, Lyme, hepatitis, and malaria. Right. Um, And the WHO said that, I mean, they issued guidance saying, you know, we think it's fine for everything else. (laughs) Yeah. Um, the, The restrictions varied. So in some States you couldn't use it for outpatients in some you couldn't Mm -hmm. Prophylactically, and some it had to be a clinical trial only. Um, it, it, very curious, but they got many Republican and Democratic senator, uh, sorry, governors, to go along with with those restrictions. Right. I mean, th- to me, sort of the silver lining of this is that when we look at examples like like that, look at what's what's been done to hydroxychloroquine, um, the, the blatant politicization of it. To me, it's it's bringing it out into the open, and I feel like that has to be a good thing. Do do you think so? Yes. Um, yeah, I I think I felt like it's a wedge issue. I mean, I really hoped others would, and and my article got reposted in many places, and comment. It's the most read thing I've ever written, but it still didn't actually make a dent in policy anywhere, and. Um, you know, it's not told well enough by me. Some Once you understand that all these different levers of policy at all levels of government, both in the US and in Europe, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and uh, some manufacturers were also involved in preventing patients from getting a potentially life-saving drug for a life-threatening disease, you understand that there's something really, really rotten going on. 
And that opens your mind to seeing some of, then you see that enabled me to sort of look at the CDC numbers and what are they doing here? You know, because I wouldn't have thought five years ago that CDC would be bold enough or would, would attempt to do, I mean, those are professional people. You would think they, they could all lose their jobs if or they could never be able to get another job if somebody knew how they are fiddling around with the numbers. Right. No, it's surprising. It's it, it even even for for lay people like myself. We I look at this and, and it's like why why do they think they're going to get away with this or the people designing those those trials? Why and that's what's scary to me is that they do believe they can get away with it. Yes. And the other I, scary thing is that probably most of the people who are carrying out these orders are not benefiting from it. Right. Or, or, you know, their families will be harmed too. Yeah. And yet they walk in lockstep as bureaucrats. Yeah, the Eichmann syndrome. Yeah, it's um What do we do? Well, I think we talk. I think we we talk as nicely as we can to people about and try to reach them where they are and I'm I'm not always good at that. But um I think you have to say so you go backwards, say, well, all these screwy things are happening to prevent people from getting a life-saving drug. Why would that be? Okay. To me, the only reason that would be is if you wanted the pandemic to go on and on. Okay. Why would you want the pandemic to go on and on? Because you're using it as an excuse to lock down businesses, put a lot of people out of business, out of work. You're trying to crack the economy. Oh, so some other people can buy what's left for pennies on the dollar. Oh, perhaps there are some people who want starvation, who want to reduce the population. You know, I don't know if that's true, but you try to think, well, what are the possibilities? Mm -hmm. The the possibilities are all dire and dreadful. Mm -hmm. But one of those possibilities or more is is real. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to for people to face. Yeah. The acts themselves, you know, they're undeniable. It's undeniable that this is going on, that outright fraud and criminal, I mean, criminal fraud is going on. And you're right. It's just a question of, well, now how do we, how do you determine what the motives are? That's where it always gets tricky because you can't get inside someone else's head, but it's just becoming clearer and clearer that, I mean, it should be becoming clearer and clearer to the people we're speaking with that, you know, something, something nefarious is going on. So um, thank you for coming on the show. Um, I'd love to have you back on again. I'm sure this, these issues are not going to go away anytime soon. Um, Yeah. Thank you. Fun talking to you. I'm glad to see you in person. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Finally. I really enjoyed what you've written. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So. All right. Well, we'll, we will, we will catch up again. (laughs) Bye. Bye.